Hello listeners, this is Summer and you are listening to another episode of Bisexually Lit, the podcast where typically two queer best friends sit around, shoot the shit, talk about movies and what it means to us and what it says about society and our culture and get a little weird with it. Um, Today, we have a very special treat for you. And when I say your ears are in for a real treat, I mean it. Um, Let me give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on. Uh, The past couple weeks have been extremely hectic. I was out of town for a while. Um, Danny and I tried to meet up to record prior to that and we weren't really able to to make it happen. Uh, we have tried, but life happens, right? Shit happens. We are human and the world is burning around us. Uh, despite all that, um, uh, Danny was gracious enough to put together an extremely profound and outstanding essay on a film uh, that they have thoughts about and feelings. And I was just able to listen to this essay that they so kindly put together. And let me tell you, you are all going to get a a little insight into the, the beauty of the brain that is residing in Danny's skull. (laughs) Um, Allow me to gush briefly. I'm not going to be brief. Fuck it. Danny is one of the most brilliant people I know. They constantly are producing thoughts that are so profound that I can barely keep up with them um, on a technical level, on an emotional level. And the fact that they still love me and are friends with me when I cannot keep up (laughs) says a lot. They contain multitudes. Um, So yeah, you know, I started a new job this past week. Uh, I've been dealing with with a lot in that sense. And because of the fact that we weren't able to record an episode to release, we really wanted to get something out there. And yeah, Danny took it upon themselves to write one of the most brilliant think pieces on a film that I have ever had the pleasure of hearing. Uh, so let me just say thank you to Danny. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for allowing us to peer into that beautiful brain of yours. (laughs) And listeners, um, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have witnessed it in real time, but let's all say thanks to Danny snaps, snaps for Danny. And you're, you're in for a, a really awesome, awesome, awesome ear treat. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Danny. They are going to introduce the film and I can't wait to get back in the room with him so that we can cover, you know, a a new episode together. Um, Next time you hear us, it'll be the both of us and we'll be back on our bullshit. So without further ado, the astounding Danny. Bye. Miss you. Love you all. Talk to you soon. Hey guys, it's Danny. I'm editing this. We're putting it out in like half an hour and I just got Summer's intro. I love the hell out of her, but she's overhyping me. My brain is full of spiders and movie quotes. Uh, I hope you enjoy the essay though. Love you. Bye. So the movie that I'm discussing, just a quick pre-scripted intro, uh, the movie discussed today is The Big Short. Uh, It came out in 2015, directed by Adam McKay, and written and co-written by Adam McKay and Charles Randolph. Uh, You may know Adam McKay from his work, I believe, on uh, 
Talladega Nights, if I'm not mistaken. He has uh, quite a bit of experience working with comedic legends like Will Ferrell. I believe that this movie was actually the first movie that he directed where Will Ferrell was not in the cast. Um, This movie is, uh, I would say, a financial thriller, a financial drama. And it tells the story of the housing crisis in 2008, especially the lead up to it and the story of several people who profited a lot off of the loss of billions and billions and billions of dollars from the world economy and the displacement of thousands of people in our country. Uh, So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I... Okay, I'm going to say one more thing as a disclaimer. When I started watching this, I've, I've watched this movie probably three or four times in the last week. The first two times I was looking at it and I was like, I fucking love this movie. This is so fun and upbeat. The pacing is great. The energy is great throughout. And then I started writing my essay and I realized just how bleak it was. Um, so this hopefully is a fun, interesting educational episode for you guys. Hopefully it helps you access maybe some thoughts or feelings that you have about the financial system, what happened in 2008. But this is not a hopeful essay that I have written, unfortunately, because in the end, this movie is about an economic disaster that still shapes our lives to this day. So let's dive into the essay, shall we? I started watching The Big Short earlier this week with the intention to write about modes of communicating and how to make an audience understand a movie that relies heavily on how much they know things. My intention was to look at this movie from a structural perspective, analyzing elements of film language and how the script and narrative work together in order to uh, build up this concept of explaining financial instruments. Um, I took notes and as I went, I started realizing that this movie, while it is about communication and filmmaking language and the fourth wall and pacing and all those things that make you understand the money talk of it all, that wasn't why I was watching. That was just the device used by the filmmaker to make sure that I could get at the meat of the story, the personal, painful, emotional, devastating story of how we all grew up and how we all watched the world break and to a certain extent, how we're watching it break all over again. But we'll get back to that. I work at a bank. I started there in July of 2021, and I knew nothing about finance. I had spent the year and a half prior as a technical writer at a software company, and because of the software that that company made, I knew a little bit about how individual mortgages worked. Uh, But I didn't understand economics or mortgage-backed securities or hedge funds or really investing as like a concept. Um, I knew that people made money on Wall Street and that's pretty much all I knew. The first time I ever talked to my new boss over the phone a couple months before I started, I told him I was super nervous because I had no idea what was going on or how the market worked or what any of these financial instruments that he was talking about were. And he said, that, that's okay. That's okay. We'll provide you with on-the-job training. We'll explain everything you need to know. But if you want to prepare, if you want to feel like you might know a little bit about how this all works, you should watch The Big Short. Uh, so I rewatched The Big Short as prep for my new job. And I fucking love it. I, I had seen it before and I knew that I liked it. Uh, But as I watched it, I paid a lot more attention to what the movie was actively trying to teach me. It's, yeah, it's interesting. There's something about it that makes people feel smart, that welcomes people in, and makes things easier to process. Um, There, Honestly, there aren't a lot of movies that I can think of that do this, that go into the detail and the functions and structures of the things that make it up. You know, um, most things, if they incorporate some scientific or mathematical concept, they'll like give you a quick explainer, but they won't like delve into it. And the the way that this movie teaches you stuff, uh, it kind of reminds me of Michael Crichton. Um, hopefully some of our listeners are familiar with him. He wrote uh, Jurassic Park and 
uh, there are several others. The Andromeda Strain, Next Prey. I really, really used to love Michael Crichton uh, in high school. And I remember the first time I ever read Timeline. Uh, it's a great book. It goes super hard. Um, and in it, uh, if I remember correctly, they explain quantum physics and basically multiverses. And then it parlays that into time travel. Uh, and I remember reading this, it has like diagrams and illustrations, but like very easy to process. And it's not presented to the reader. Instead, it's presented to the characters in the book who are learning about quantum physics. Uh, they're in a situation where it necessitates that they understand that. And the big short is interesting in that it applies a very similar concept into filmmaking language. The, the medium of the big short is different than the medium of a sci-fi book. And I want to dive into how they make good use of the medium in order to improve communication and understanding. In the end, Louis Ranieri's mortgage-backed security mutated into a monstrosity that collapsed the whole world economy. And none of the experts or leaders or talking heads had a clue it was coming. I'm guessing most of you still don't really know what happened. Yeah, you got a sound by you repeat so you don't sound dumb, but come on. Our financial institutions are strong. This is, uh, it's almost a matter of world building, I would say. So there is, I mean, everyone's seen Inception, right? Uh, in Inception, there's like a world built around this concept of like the dream science and the Inception and the everything. And the plot hinges on that thing. So you have to understand these like sci-fi concepts uh, that build the world before you can understand like how the story exists in the world and why it's important, right? And so in Inception, they spend hours setting up the dream science space stuff, the timing and how it works and what's on the line if you fail. And then they can kind of bring it all together in that last hour where it's like this gorgeous work of art, right? And The Big Short does this too. It may feel a little weird to apply the concept of world building to something that is ostensibly a true story, but just because it's a true story doesn't necessarily mean it takes place in our world, right? 2007 was a very different time. Wall Street is a very different place culturally and it... It exists apart from us. And so the director had to educate us on what that world looks like in order to get us to the story that matters. So uh, we're given a lot of different like world building things. Uh, the, the movie actually makes really, really great use of um, music and montage to set a tone and establish setting, right? Uh, it's amazing how they establish like the vibes and the cultural trends. Uh, and then later they're able to slow it down and explain the details of the thing that's happening. But they first set you in this new setting, this culture. It's a world where Britney is on TV, uh, Ludacris is telling people to shake their moneymaker, and Polyphonic is covering Nirvana's lithium with just like the weirdest Weirdest vowels I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm so happy because today I found my friends. They're in my head. So once they, once the filmmakers have established that setting, that tone, and allowed you to understand what's driving people in this time, uh, lots of money, lots of consumption, lots of excess, and just the glitz of everything, um, they... Uh, are actually able to get down to the brass tacks of explaining what this movie is talking about, right? Um, and the first and main device that the filmmakers use that I want to talk about is definitely the most memorable out of the movie. Um, it's the one that people brought up when I said I was writing an essay about the big short. Uh, there are three scenes where actual real-life celebrities are brought onto the screen and who and then they explain concepts behind financial instruments directly to the audience. They're looking at the camera, they're being cheeky, they're framed in such a way that like you are able to understand what they're saying to you. It's like a masterclass, but for 
hot people. So there are three of these specific scenes. There are other places where the movie breaks the fourth wall, but these are the explainer scenes that everyone remembers. The first one is, I would say, the most memorable. Uh, it's introduced by Ryan Gosling. Mortgage-backed securities, subprime loans, tranches. It's pretty confusing, right? Does it make you feel bored or stupid? Well, it's supposed to. Wall Street loves to use confusing terms to make you think only they can do what they do. Or even better, for you just to leave them the fuck alone. So here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain. And we cut to Margot Robbie, her hair perfect, her makeup perfect, in this like sun-soaked bathroom with a butler at her side pouring champagne into a gorgeous flute. And she's covered in bubbles and letting you know exactly how a mortgage-backed security works and what happens when you put a subprime loan into them. And like, it doesn't seem like it would work, right? It, it seems like you almost feel like they would be talking down to you. But that's not how it feels. Uh, yeah, we know that none of this holds your attention because it's not interesting. So we're packaging it in the most approachable way possible. Uh, here's Margot Robbie. They continue with this, right? Uh, several minutes later, there's a scene where Anthony Bourdain is featured and he makes a fish stew uh, and compares it to how a collateralized debt obligation works. And then later in Vegas, you see Selena Gomez and Richard Thaler, I believe, who is the founder, the, the father of behavioral economics, uh, playing blackjack and explaining how synthetic CDOs work. All of these are bright and quick. There's a, a visible setting that they're grounded in, and there's a specific way that they're introduced. They're, they, uh, um, Ryan Gosling, his uh, voiceover comes in, and it's pretty slick. It's really well done. Um, and he says, we know that this doesn't make sense. We know that this isn't interesting. Like, you are not expected to know this, but we want you to care. So here's an easier way to digest it. And I think that that, like, when we're talking about pure pedagogy, that's an in insanely good idea. Like, it's framed and reframed in this way that, like, we're not just here talking. We want you to understand because you need to understand uh, for all the reasons that we already talked about, right? It's great because you, you definitely feel like you're being pulled out of the narrative, but you're not pulled out of the setting and the vibe and the overall energy of the movie, right? Um, it's not like you're being dragged into a lecture on anything. You feel like you're being pulled aside by a close friend um, and they whisper a little secret to you to make sure that you're catching up, right? Yeah, I think it really nails the tone, especially with the framing of like Ryan Gosling's character packaging all of this for you. Um, it's it's fantastic. And and Gosling's character, his name is uh, Jared Vennett. He's a trader at Deutsche Bank, I believe. Um, he he pretty consistently breaks the fourth wall and uh, he'll just stop and look you in the eyes and say, hey, this is the thing. I'm establishing the stakes. Uh, this thing that we just discussed is why everything fell apart. So those fourth wall breaks are fantastic. They're a core aspect of the pedagogy of the movie. But there's lots of other like really cool things that I think are unique to uh, narrative storytelling that allows for this movie to get its point across really, really well. Um, I... Uh, Part of it is that you are learning along with characters who sort of act as your proxy in the movie, right? So if you read a lot or have heard a lot of people talking online about books or whatever, you probably know this concept of like a fish out of water POV character. I, I know it's not exclusive to novels or anything, and I don't know if there's like a specific word for it, but I've heard a couple people talking about that. Um, there's a so the fish out of water POV character is a great way to explain world building in like a pretty concise way that is integrated into the story, right? So a fish out of water POV character, they are new to the situation and they need things explained to them just like the audience. And so if they, if the, if the author thinks that 
the audience might be confused, then he may posit that the point of view character is also confused. And he can have that point of view character ask clarifying questions. And they do that all the time in this movie. And it is fantastic almost every single time. I I can't think of a bad example of how this works, right? So I guess I'll explain. So, um, So Mark Baum, played by Steve Carell, he runs a hedge fund. Um, who is thinking about investing in the thing. Uh, he's, they're thinking about buying basically insurance against the housing market, right? And so then it brings them in and he tells them everything about what's going on. He provides a really good primer on the concept of a mortgage-backed security with all of the tranches within it. And um, because he, like Mark Baum is the point of view character, then uh, it has to explain it well to him within the context of the story. And so he gives them a really good um, a metaphor with like a little Jenga tower composed of different mortgages and stuff. It's, it's great. It's a great scene. Uh, and that metaphor, which is also used um, quite a bit in the fourth wall breaking scenes with A-list cameos, uh, that metaphor is only the introduction and it's not like the actual genius of the structure of this film. I think that the genius of telling the story of the financial collapse in this way is shown when Mark Baum is able to look at Jared and say, OK, so you're telling me all of these things. Please clarify what this means and what this means and what this means. And as it goes on, the audience is keeping up, but... Mark Baum is able to wrangle it into a concise emotional reaction to the things he just heard, allowing the audience to accompany him on that emotion that he's experiencing. Right. Um, I mean, at the end of the at the end of the scene, there's like this uproar uh, with all of his coworkers and people talking about what's going on. And he sums it up. He says, OK, a, a bond is dog shit. A CDO is dog shit wrapped in cat shit. (laughs) And like, that's a very, uh, you know, that's what he got out of the explanation provided by Jared. And, you know, he's able to ask clarifying questions in the interim. But the audience comes out with an understanding, like, functionally of what happens. They may not understand, like, everything that what it means. Tranches are a little complicated and blah, 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 blah. But he comes out with the emotional punch of, our economy is propped up on dog shit, right? And that POV character coming to those realizations and doing it over and over and over in new ways uh, is a fantastic device. So it happens again. He, like, right after their pitch meeting with Jared, they go down to Florida and they try and, like, talk to real people and see if there's a housing bubble, right? They ask clarifying questions to uh, real estate agents and mortgage sellers and like ordinary people in their homes and in strip clubs and stuff. Those explorations that the point of view character goes on, um, they're the ones that ground this movie and allow people to understand. So bear with me here a little bit. Uh, Parts of this movie, specific scenes, remind me of Socratic dialogues. Um, For those who don't know, uh, the old Greek philosopher and teacher Socrates, um, he wrote a lot of dialogues. Well, I guess, I think Plato wrote down the dialogues, but Socrates is like the character in the dialogues. Um, They're usually scenes between two people in which one of them, like the wise man, the Socrates, asks the other person questions and the other answers. And through this, they like uncover knowledge and insight. And, you know, variations on this are used in like the Socratic method of teaching, which I believe is pretty common in law schools where the teachers use thought-provoking questions to engage students in conversation. So the original Socratic dialogues were just conversations that Plato wrote down, likely ones that like never actually happened, um, in which the character of Socrates guides students to the discovery of important truths about the world. But when it comes to pedagogy, it seems like this can be super edifying and persuasive. Like it, it allows for like a lot of back and forth and flexibility and for concepts to be questioned and analyzed in ways that often aren't possible in, in simple declaratory or textbook style examples. I mean, 
there is a reason that this movie is more enjoyable than a serious six handbook. And, and part of that is because it's full of hot people who talk fast. But part of that is because it's a journey, it's uncovering and you are pulled through the journey of learning, you know, with them, instead of beating your head against a wall of information, you have learning modeled for you. And you're invited through that like human experience to to change your mind or to understand something new. And it's it's kind of great that Socrates, you know, had this point, he was, he, he organized information in a way that was really, really comprehensible. And uh, it's still effective to this day, you know? So yeah, as as Mark Baum learns about this product that he's being sold by Venet, as he talks to the mortgage brokers who are possibly inadvertently fucking over um, the working class of Florida and all of these places, you go on that journey with him of like the epiphany of realizing how bad everything is and you come with him and you understand it. And even if you don't understand it, you understand the emotions behind it. You understand the stakes of it and you can catch up on the rest of it later. The emotion of it is is the core. They just want you to be there with the character. I think that emotion, it, it, I want to use that emotion to jump off into the next topic uh, of this essay. So up until now, we've been talking about why and how this movie teaches you things about the stock market. But there's more. Um, and as I said before, I'm, I'm not watching this movie to learn about the stock market or the mortgage bonds market. I'm watching this movie because it's a beautiful piece of art and because it inspires a lot of emotion in me. And... I think that's, uh, you know, the genius of this movie. Understanding and the Socratic method and uh, cameos and Jenga towers, they only get you so far. Witnessing the character's journey only gets you so far because immediately after the journey happens, they ground it. And I said earlier that I wanted to only analyze this in terms of structure and filmmaking language, but... There's so much more. To follow up on Venet's pitch, right? Uh, Baum and the rest of his front point dudes go to Florida and they have conversations with people who are going to lose their homes, declare bankruptcy, lose everything. They witness empty houses and abandoned dreams and fraud. And like that's that's the brilliance there. Like they're still teaching you, but the emotions there, the abandoned housing developments, the the realtor who is a little bit confused and worried about the slowdown in the economy. Those are the things that matter in this movie. You take one step out of everything and you're staring humanity in the face. You're staring yourself in the face. This movie understands and reiterates the human costs and the lives lived and the lives lost over corporate margins and these ever more complex financial products. And yeah, it gets to an emotional level. And that's what we're going to delve into right after this break. Listen close. You'll hear it in the rustle of the leaves and the whisper of the wind. In the falling snow and drifting clouds. The song of the road. The story of the people of this world. A soaring eagle, a scampering mouse, and the myths that surround them. They traveled through snow-dappled fields and across rolling oceans. To raucous festivals and somber forests. Not every journey needs a destination. Sometimes it's enough to wander and roam. Wander and Roam, an improvised pastoral story Releases Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Winterhawk Podcasting presents Lower 48, a horror storytelling podcast presented bi-weekly starting March 8th. Listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, yeah, we're back. 
I hope that you enjoyed the ad and I hope that you're feeling ready to discuss some of the emotions I have about this movie. Um, So before the break, just a disclaimer, before the break, uh, I was definitely more in an analytical space, but this is going to turn into more of a personal essay from here on out. So please bear with me uh, and know that I am not an expert on any of this. Uh, I, I work in a bank, but I do not touch this shit. I have no concept of macroeconomic trends, and so therefore none of this should be taken as gospel. It is just thoughts that I was having that I want to share with you. I want people to think about and consider and not take as gospel, but maybe to integrate it into their worldview, right? Uh, My background is in industrial organizational psychology, and I'm especially interested in systems and communication, right? So when I talk about systems, when I talk about uh, how organizations are built, I am a little bit better, but monetarily do not take my advice for anything. Um, So yeah, I, I said earlier that I had originally planned to write this essay exclusively about how the movie teaches the audience about the subject matter. And I swear I was doing great until I actually started like taking notes. And I I just want to like give you a glimpse at some of the notes that I took, right? So one of the things that I wrote down, uh, dynamic visual exploration, people explaining with metaphor and asking clarifying questions, multiple locations, parentheses, hands-on learning, right? It teaches you in all these different ways. But then the very next bullet point I wrote, every time you start thinking it's all ethereal, all high level, all distant, you see people, actual people, and the consequences of all this bullshit. There's this sharp divide here between the two bullet points. Uh, and I every time I tried to analyze this movie coldly, it's or just as a work of art disconnected from reality, it totally yanks me out of it, you know? Like, um, they're actively trying to ground you to the emotional reality of the devastation wrought by the 2008 financial crisis. Um, There's this great scene where uh, Jamie and Charlie, the two guys who run Brownstone Capital, who they they made like so much money off of this, um, they are celebrating the fact that they just bought a ridiculous amount of swaps in Vegas and they're about to make millions of dollars. And they're with an old friend, Ben Rickert, who is an ex-trader, right? They start dancing and like doing the whole like, hell yeah, we just made millions of dollars. Uh, And Ben Rickert snaps at them. And the music, which had been like pretty much pumping, goes really quiet. And Rickert delivers a great line that really encapsulates what this movie is about. Um, And actually, I want to play it real quick. Stop it. Stop. (laughs) What? Do you have any idea what you just did? Oh, come on, we just made the deal of our lifetimes. We should celebrate. We just bet against the American economy. Fuck yeah, we did. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Which means... Oh! Which means, <laughs> if we're right... If we're right, people lose homes. People lose jobs. People lose retirement savings. People lose pensions. You know what I hate about fucking banking? It reduces people to numbers. Here's a number. Every 1% unemployment goes up. 40,000 people die. Did you know that? No. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. We were just excited. Just don't fucking dance. All right. Where are you going? Whoa, I just got really scared. That scene is what this essay is about. Just don't fucking dance. Every single time I watch it, shivers go up my spine. At first, I like this point because, obviously, a vital part of learning is connecting the new topic to existing understandings of the world, right? That's why mnemonics work. There's, like, associations and memory recall, all of that. I I figured that this was just one aspect I could use to explore the storytelling style of the movie. But the more I dug into my thoughts, the more I realized that all of these associations and the emotions of it are the core of the movie. It's not a movie made to teach you about the stock market. It is a movie that tells you a story, one that's emotional and huge and devastating and dark. It it teaches you about the mortgage bond market so it can get you to that emotional place where, just like Jamie in the movie, you realize, oh, I just got really scared. 
that's what this movie is about and that's what movies are about that emotion there's this scene later in the movie almost to the end where mark comes home from a trip and into the arms of his wife cynthia the audio track fades half out overlapping as steve Carell and marissa tomei discuss what's about to happen when the bonds collapse they discuss the death of mark's brother and how it's pained him and the way he feels alienated and scared and I was watching this and I closed my eyes and the tone used and the way that everything's muffled and faded out, it provoked a really, really emotional reaction in me. I was 12 years old and I could hear my parents through the thin walls of a 34 foot RV parked in the trailer park in Provo, Utah. And I was scared. I, wonder how many listeners have similar moments of hearing their parents or or their significant other their boss of themselves talking in hushed tones about how worried they are about how they don't know what the world is going to look like in a year or three years and You know, I don't remember much of the housing market crisis. Yeah, I was 11 when things started to go down and then 12 in 2008. Um, My parents sold their house just a few months before the crash. We were really lucky. But I still remember that feeling of unease, of not knowing what was going on, of the feeling. It was like I was standing on a giant wheel that was turning beneath me. But it was so slow that I didn't really notice. But it was just fast enough to make me feel off kilter. And I... Do you remember? What was it like for you? I don't know anything about our listener demographics, so it's totally possible that some of our listeners were way too young to remember, but maybe some of you do remember. Maybe some of you were there. No matter what, I, I'm sure you remember the fallout, right? There is this feeling of betrayal. You promised me that if I went to school and got a good job and bought a house and invested in the stock market, I would be okay, and now I'm not okay. If that's not true, what is? Before millennials could even really take a stab at the American dream, that picket fence bubble burst and generations were left to pick up the twisted economy. You know, there there are very few true stories that actually affected as many people as the housing crisis did. It was a global disaster and it ruined the ability of millennials to have faith in the world that their parents grew up in, a world of Reaganomics and high hiring rates out of college and starter homes and not being scared that the world would be forever out of their reach. The scope of it and the damage done by the systems that were running as usual is fucking incredible. That's why I love this movie. That's the personal connection. That's the emotion. The characters lose their faith in the system over the course of the movie. It hurts to realize that you lost something that never really existed. Did you know that this movie came out in 2015? That's eight years after the housing crisis first hit. And the movie has now been out for eight years as of this recording. And I don't know if that means anything. But I do know that over the hours of writing this essay, I kept being reminded of the feeling in March 2020 when I when I realized that COVID was happening. I remember... January 6th, 2021, when I realized what was happening at the Capitol. I remember reading articles about how the world won't be here in 100 years if we don't do something about climate change. This movie is not only about the financial crash of 2008. It is also about faith in systems. And... I want to talk a little bit about systems. I want to talk about why things fail and fall apart because it's something that fascinates me and it always has. Um, I'm almost done. I promise. I just want to talk about one of my favorite concepts. So a few months ago, I was listening to a podcast. I think it may have been behind the bastards, but it was like an episode from a couple years ago and I can't find it anymore. Um, one of the get the guests on the episode described something as a horrible engine that has been built by accident and is now churning these people towards calamity. I can't remember what it was in reference to, but apparently I liked it so much that I wrote it down. Um, 
but I didn't write down where I got it. So that's on me. If you know who said that, DM me. Um, anyway, it's a concept I keep coming back to is engines built by accident. So I confess I haven't done any real reading on this, so I'm going to get anecdotal and it's going to be personal observational evidence. It's just an idea. But when we analyze organizations and systems that develop over a long time and aren't necessarily in the hands of one person through that whole time, I'm talking on the scale of like countries, armies, full economies, uh, old religions, we see that like the reasons for the inception and growth of these organizations, they're all driven by incentives that are inherited directly from the people making them, right? If a bunch of people want the same thing and they get together uh, and they create something, then the thing that they create is going to inherit what they love and are striving for, right? Uh, our religion is severally steered by the people running the religion. Armies are guided by the people at the head. The people who control the power in the system are applying principles of value. Um, and obviously different systems have power more or less concentrated at the top, depending on what the thing is. I can't speak to how distributed the power was in banking in the 1970s, but it does appear that all the people acting on that power and influencing the incentives of the system were all pursuing one goal, one incentive driving growth, and that was money. The system inherited that singular drive and it was extremely good at it. So the system formed and grew and built itself, not because anyone really intended to make it that way, but because parts of the system were all pursuing similar goals. When you're trying to make money, you have to continue expanding and acquiring and that growth just perpetuated the system. I think a lot of people m underestimate what people can build when they're all working towards the same goal. They don't even necessarily have to be working together. They don't have to be working in concert. But the things that they create when they're all pushing for the same goal change the world. And that's not always in a good way. When your goal is blind expansion and consumption, the system takes a form that is really good at expanding and consuming. That's what I'm talking about when I say a, an engine built by accident. It stumbled into being out of a pure drive for money. And a system built by accident is really hard to control. And it's hard to get it to do anything that it wasn't built out of doing. It wasn't necessarily built for that thing. It was built by accident. It's a byproduct of the pursuit of that thing. It becomes this blind leviathan. So you can't use it for anything. There can be no intention, just expansion and perpetuation. I assume that such expansion and perpetuation isn't harmful in all cases, depending on what the system is expanding into. But in this case, the system expanded into a human need. The ability for people to stay safe in homes, it started gobbling up housing, it started gobbling up the ability for people to be safe and warm and protected. And it kept lumbering after the singular drive to acquire money. And there was never a successful attempt in 30 years to turn it away from that goal. And even till now, it's been 50 years, it's still driving after that goal, despite attempts to regulate it, which there have been good attempts to regulate it. There's a lot more, uh, transparency and openness. There's a lot less fraud than what we saw. And uh, bankers go to jail all the time for this shit, right? But it's not turning away from money. It's just being funneled, being trimmed. But the Leviathan is still there. The structure is self-perpetuating and and like since the only pe since only the people who want money go into it, they they continue to influence it. So money uh, like builds into more money and more money and people find and innovate new ways to make money. And that's, that's what Louis Ranieri did. Uh, I feel like as a millennial, my life has been defined by these engines built by accident. The housing crash, social media, streaming, the death of news, COVID, anti-LGBTQ sentiment, the rise of fascism, production and consumption of carbon-emitting fuels. These systems are driven by the values of their controllers, and they've changed all our lives. They've swallowed all of our lives and the entire world. 
And every driver of these systems has been commodified, creating new growth opportunities. And no one stops to check if we're churning towards calamity. So 16 years later, here we are. We're sliding into a recession. Banks are failing. Housing is unaffordable, which is a nice change since it used to be way too affordable, I guess. We're ramping up for a turbulent election. The WGA is on strike again, just like they were in 2007. Great job, guys. Solidarity. 16 years later, and has anything really changed? As this movie shows, even if no one notices it, calamity comes eventually. The scenes in Las Vegas that uh, we see the characters in, uh, they're really interesting to me um, because of how they illustrate these machines built by accident. They're the moment when the anger and excitement at the investment opportunities curdles into horror as we take on the scale of the juggernaut of the mortgage industry. Mark Baum meets with a CDO manager over sushi and discusses synthetic CDOs and the reality of leveraged positions in the bond market. As he discusses the CDOs, it becomes super clear that the manager is both corrupt and low-key the shittiest person on earth. At one point, he looks Baum in the face and says, I assume no risk for these instruments, Mr. Baum. But he gloats and seems to think that the money in his bank account validates his life decisions. Essentially, he said, I'll tell you what I make, and you tell me what you make, and we'll see who society values more. That guy. Uh, these people are cogs in the machine. Responsibility is distributed over hundreds of people, all in lockstep with the rest of the system, who assume no risk for these instruments, but who benefit from the shitty, unethical, unsustainable engine that they're inside of. But then the system stumbles, the market collapses, and the engine falls apart, and people suffer. Because no matter who the cogs are in the system, or what they want, or where the machine is going, one thing is for sure. The system consumes us. The system feeds on us and our ability to live. The book this movie is based on is called The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine by Michael Lewis. I. It took me until this long in the episode to actually look at the subtitle. Um and realized that it was called a machine. It tells the story of the machine in a similar way to how the movie tells it. And it also focuses on these people who profited off of the financial crisis. Um, they, they didn't cause it. The characters uh, in this movie and their real life sort of uh, equivalents, um, because most of, the, most of the names were changed, their real life equivalents, they didn't cause any of this, right? They weren't they weren't villains, but also they weren't heroes. They just made the smart call. The book and the movie seemed to be proposing that the people who were there, these characters, they were mavericks. They were against the grain types. And it's true that they may be that. But the framing that they were working against the system is wholly incorrect. They, they weren't working against the system. They were betting against it. They were part of the system, just like the other cogs in the machine, but they're the focus of this movie for two reasons. First of all, they are the only people who have a happy ending. And even then, it's not a happy ending. It's a hopeless ending, but at least they made money, right? At least they got out of the system having done what it was designed to do. And the second reason is that they knew the machine. The movie had to tap into the idea that these people they were only able to make the smart call because they understood the machine and they understood why it was breaking. And it's not just about mortgages and swaps and options. It's the fact that the engine was churning towards calamity. After everything, maybe the big short was just here to teach me a lesson after all. Maybe it was just here to teach me about the stock market. And I do kind of mean that maybe it was just intending to teach me about mortgage swaps, but maybe it was also here to teach us about the scope and the system and how we have to look. We have to look around and we have to understand that the system is not being steered. It was built by accident. I don't know how to wrap up this essay. I really got off the rails there because... The movie, for all its glitz, is 
bleak. It is a pseudo-apocalyptic economic disaster. Anyway, this essay may be a symptom of depression. And I don't know how to finish it up. But the thing is, I can't say that I can derive a hopeful message from the movie because uh, the movie doesn't really have a hopeful message. Um, There are several like title cards throughout the course of the movie and the last one used um, as like an intro to the final part of the movie. It's something to the extent of, you know, deep down, everyone is just waiting for the end of the world. The thing is, I don't think that's true. People who can profit off the end of the world are waiting for the end of the world. But there are real people here. There are real people who were hurt in the the housing crash. There are real people who were hurt by COVID, who are hurt by anti-trans sentiment in the United States and in other uh, huge economies. And there are entire ways of life that will be destroyed by carbon emissions. Not everyone's waiting for the end of the world. A lot of people are trying to save it. Thank you guys all for listening into our podcast. Uh, It was so great to spend some time thinking about this movie and uh, processing it with you guys. And uh, we will see you soon. Um, If you want to contact us, we are on Twitter and Instagram at bisexually underscore lit. We're on Tumblr at bisexually lit pod. And you can email us at bisexually lit pod at gmail.com. Please check out some of the other shows that our network Winterhawk puts out. Uh, We have two other shows that are both really good. Um, You can check us out at winterhawkpodcasting.com. And yeah, please let us know what you thought of this essay and about this um, sort of mode of presenting the podcast. Again, this is not like a long term thing, but if you liked it, let us know. I'm always writing essays that I never publish. So maybe if you want more, we can get you more. Um, But Summer will be back in the studio with me in a couple weeks and we will see you all then. Thank you. Bye. Music by Gary Argyle. Bisexually Lit is a production of Winterhawk Podcasts. For more information, go to winterhawkpodcasting.com.